Before we get started, a warning. This episode gets a little technical and a little lawyery. I'm unapologetic. I think my guest, Miller Thompson LLP partner Kelly Harris, does a great job thinking and speaking critically about an intriguing new piece of legislation here. And our conversation does give you a window into the thought processes of a regulatory solicitor. But with Gerald Chan's episode on regulatory enforcement last month and Charles Benoit's episode on his company's constitutional challenge last year, I do acknowledge that this is the third of three fairly technical episodes in a row. But don't worry, next episode is with a Scottish cultural historian in which we make fun of 19th century British people who sought peaceful vacations slumming it in the highlands, the regulatory regimes that the Scots constructed to contain those Brits, and how their regulatory inventions still make up parts of our food and hospitality regulations today in Canada. Welcome to The Food Court, Season 2, a podcast hosted by me, Glenford Jameson, and supported by my law firm, G.S. Jameson & Company. We do great corporate commercial and regulatory work, primarily for stakeholders from all parts of the food sector, and when we're not doing that, we're researching, writing, or speaking on issues facing food and law. On to the Healthy Menu Choices Act. Mandatory calorie labeling in Ontario. In a lot of ways, this is a great companion episode to Catherine Ma's earlier episode this season, in which she advocates for municipalities as effective jurisdictions to enact change in how we approach public health problems, particularly those problems that are preventative rather than acute in nature. The tight geographic sameness of a municipality lends a neighborly feel to these policies, which has allowed many U.S. cities to push the public health agenda forward on the basis of common problems and a common identity. Uh, Calorie labeling is a great example of this. In the U.S., it was implemented first in cities, then states, and now it's across the U.S. and administered by the Food and Drug Administration. But there really hasn't been a rogue public health jurisdiction in Canada like the U.S. has with places like Berkeley. With soda taxes, I acknowledge that we have a different structure in Canada for taxation at the municipal level than most U.S. jurisdictions, so we don't generally have the same ability to punish consumption and tax. But we do have the ability to infringe on the freedom of corporate expression and make mandatory calorie labeling happen. But we never chose to do this locally. Ontario decided to do it provincially instead. And when it did that, it didn't do it in an original or roguish way either. In a lot of ways, the Ontario Healthy Menu Choices Act is simply copycat legislation. Sure, it has been modified to fit the Ontarian legal context, but have no doubt, this is ripped from our neighbors. I guess sometimes it's nice not to have to be a leader. Ontario let the U.S. figure out most of the kinks of this legislation before implementing it here in Canada, And by deciding to take the wait-and-see approach and not be a jurisdictional leader in this area, we as Canadians have allowed the U.S. to take on the risk and figure out what works. And we've had the luxury of deciding what we want to adopt and what we want to discard. And that's what we've got here with this act. And I guess we'll have to wait and see how it shakes out for Ontarians. The structure of this episode is different than any other that we've done. This one sounds like a polished version of the conversation that two solicitors at a social gathering who run into each other and begin talking shop uh, would have while their spouses get increasingly bored. This does come up, so if you have a spouse that is wondering what it's like to live with a lawyer, 
I guess this podcast could be used to learning aid in that way. But as a new act, we wanted to take a different approach to thinking about this calorie labeling piece. Rather than grabbing onto the public health discussion at large, like I did with Catherine Ma, we wanted to get pretty technical. It's a technical piece of legislation, and to treat it generally would have been a disservice to you and a waste of the expertise of my guest, Kelly Harris. We wanted to prod the legislation to figure out whether the legislation drafters did a thorough job in contemplating all of the ways in which Ontarians purchase ready-to-eat food or define a grocer or think of a menu. These concepts are relatable to everyone, but they're challenging to draft. And I get excited at one point in this interview, and I describe the act as a fun drafting exercise in and of itself. Define a menu or a grocery store, broaden it, narrow it, determine what entities are captured. So much of what regulatory solicitors do relates to legislative and regulatory analysis. And part of that is trying to understand what the legislators intended. One of the neat parts about this recording is that it's coming out 60 days after the laws and regulations were brought into force and around six months or so from the last regulatory consultation. In a sense, there are still vapor trails on this whole framework. So we've had a lot of questions and a lot of remarks beyond the standard. Calorie labeling is coming to Ontario, uh, stock articles that you've no doubt seen over the past year. And we've tried to explore the oddities of how this has come to govern your menus and advertisements and drive throughs in this province. Please enjoy. This is Kelly Harris uh, in studio on a rainy evening in February. Kelly Harris, tell us about yourself. What do you do? I am a marketing and advertising and consumer product regulatory lawyer. Uh, so I represent clients who are manufacturers, um, advertising agencies, retailers, distributors in Canada um, across a really broad range of uh, consumer products. So everything from cosmetics to food to natural health products. Um, and to more esoteric things too, like medical devices and radio spectrum products. Um, and I've been doing it for, um, oh gosh, I don't even know how many years, but I love it. It's, it's great. My clients are very interesting and they come with a lot of really diverse legal issues. Do you have any idea there was a cosmetics regulation when you left law school? <laughs> no, no. You know, I didn't even take competition law in, in <laughs> law school. So uh, it was a big surprise to uh, learn about this really cool world of, of marketing products to consumers. Critical component, obviously, is disclosure when we get into labeling issues, yeah. which is a super dynamic topic and area of discussion right now in Canada. I mean, we just closed up a consultation on front-of-label packaging. Mm -hmm. We're in the midst of sort of the final round, I guess you would call it, of, of nutrition label updating, mm -hmm. which is closing up at the end of the month. Um, and in Ontario, we got a nice little surprise for um, people who own or are franchisors who have more than 20 establishments. We've got the Healthy Menu Choices Act. Indeed. Well, and it came as a surprise to a lot of people. Uh, the history here is that the regulations under the legislation were finalized pretty late considering the ex expansive requirements uh, at store level that the regs do require. Um, I think it was in September that we got the last draft of the regs, 
and the technical briefings came out throughout the fall. Uh, so the clarity from the ministry didn't come out until I think the last FAQs came out in December for legislation and regulations that was meant to be coming into force on January 1. So a lot of people were caught a little bit unawares. Uh, hadn't done the work that they needed to do to be in compliance. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a thorny issue because it affects uh, more than just actually the stores. There's a lot of people who are going to be contributing to the information in the calorie disclosures from the manufacturers who have an interest in their, you know, for example, their food service clients that they're producing materials for. Uh, so there's a, there's a number of different parties that are involved, and not everybody really knew about it in advance. Right. So you've just been dealing with frantic phone calls for the last like, <laughs> yeah, eight January was busy, that's for sure. It's so fun when that happens. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll step back first. And uh, like in a very basic sense, what does the act require you to do? It requires you to put calorie disclosures on menus and advertisements. Boom. That's it. Sounds simple. It's so easy, right? What a simple thing to, to implement because yeah. we all purchase food in the same way and require the same information and all that sort of thing. That's it. And all of the marketing and advertising of this stuff is also straightforward too, right? Yeah. Well, and it's also, you know, the, the issue too is space. Um, you know, the, it seems like a really simple requirement, but when you think about all of the different channels of advertising food, um, social media, uh, in-store uh, on menus in store, at shelf level in store. Um, there's quite a number of, of different ways that this can pan out, and it's very difficult to comply. I mean, this is in a lot of ways public health legislation, right? Like, so like, what we're trying to do is we're trying to help people become literate uh, in terms of nutrition, right? We're queuing up conversations so that your seven year old kid can say to you, why is this 480 calories versus 520, that sort of thing? And you start to, to build that literacy at a young age and really think about things. Calories themselves are like super contested and odd piece of information within the scientific community. Uh, we've seen a bunch of jurisdictions in the U.S. choose different things to require labeling on. Like this is, uh, like in a way, Canada is super late to the game here, and Ontario is the only province that has this legislation in effect right now? Yeah, it's the only province with mandatory labeling requirements. Um, it, I think there's a voluntary program out of BC that several large companies do comply with optionally, but Ontario is the first province or jurisdiction in, in uh, Canada to mandate this. It's wild because like in the states we've got, uh, I mean, to my knowledge, I think we've got like 20 states that have each put in calorie or nutritional labeling requirements. The FDA has been instructed by the feds to, or by Congress to put in mandatory labeling across the United States. This has become fairly mainstream uh, act writing or legislation drafting as an exercise. Mm -hmm. So given that, we'd say that, you know, 20 states to draw on roughly similar goals in mind and, and sort of a similar approach to drafting laws. How did we do? How did Ontario do? You have, quite, you have clients that are super confused. You, you understand the public health rationale for it. Um, I take your point, though, that calories in, calories out is not necessarily settled science from a nutrition perspective. There's a lot more to the story 
when it comes to obesity and trying to prevent, in particular, um, you know, childhood obesity, which is something that was addressed a lot in the Hansard, uh, in the, the, sorry, I should say the legislative debates that um, came out of the first and second reading of this bill. There was a real focus on kids and a real focus on health. Um, when this legislation was uh, first introduced, it was part of a larger um, package of legislation that involved tobacco and e-cigarette uh, restrictions in Ontario. And there was a, a focus on the calorie portion of, of the legislation, but a lot of the debate was on the tobacco side. So you can really see from how it was positioned in the legislature that it really was about public health and addressing public health issues. And in the, the debates, kids came up a lot. Um, but other, other parts of this came up as well, like, well, if we're really trying to uh, deal with obesity and childhood obesity, is this the best way to do it? Uh, you know, there's no physical um, exercise component to it. Um, you know, is, is really the best investment in public health inspectors issuing fines to companies that aren't displaying calories or is the money better spent to programming for kids, for example. So I think Ontario is trying to do the right thing. Um, it's a really complicated issue, uh, you know, when you're talking about health and how food plays a huge role in health and, you know, is it the calories? Is it sugar? Is it fat? And I think that there's been a lot of debate from a policy perspective um, about bringing in, you know, maybe more of a focus on sugar, um, you know, maybe a, a reevaluation of Canada's food guide. I mean, th those are really political conversations. Um, so I think it's, it's a tough area for any government to address. And I think Ontario did a pretty, they, they tried to do a pretty good job, but the rollout of it has just really shown the complexity of this and how difficult it is to, um, to enact this kind of legis uh, this legislation, these requirements. Can you can you dramatize for me the kind of call that you might get from someone or an entity that might have been caught off guard by this? Absolutely. Other than you can edit out the oh shit moment, <laughs> but like the yeah, I mean, I think some of the first questions were, you know, does this apply to us? Uh, you know, for sure, there are certain categories of restaurants uh, that are rest, you know, restaurants are a good example. Uh, you know, if you have 20 or more locations operating under the same or substantially the similar or substantially similar name and you're offering the same or similar food items, it's a slam dunk. Um, the harder issues to, to pick through are where, you know, you're not necessarily one of those restaurant premises. You know, you're a cafeteria and you have different names. Um, that you operate under and you offer different kinds of food um, or you're a supplier to these kinds of premises and you're not sure whether or not the materials you provide to your customers are going to bring liability for you as the distributor, the, the manufacturer. So I think those were kind of the, the threshold questions. Uh, most of my clients are interested in compliance and kind of took the position that if it's likely that this is going to apply to us, we might as well just do it anyways. Um, and you don't don't really have the luxury with this kind of legislation, considering the timeline, to wait and see. Yeah. Because people were starting to implement um, in November. I started seeing them come out yeah. at certain grocery stores and, and uh, coffee shops had their 
their le- all of their signage came out earlier. So I think most people kind of decided that they wanted to comply, but that was one of the, the first kind of rounds of calls that I got. Like the, so the ones that I saw that, that adopted into what they expected to be compliance early on were usually from the U.S., right? So, I mean, Starbucks has had calorie labeling on a lot of their food for at least a year, if not more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they haven't been complying with anything necessarily because there was nothing to comply with. They were doing that as a, as a gesture, I guess, as a good corporate citizen, something they thought this was important. I would say on that point, you know, even the even the companies that were complying with maybe U.S. mandated requirements, there are a lot of differences between what's been picked up in Ontario and some of the U.S. Uh, approaches. So little things in Ontario, it, the disclosure is X cals, plural, calorie, or right. you can say X calories, plural. Whereas in the U.S., I gather it's fine to have cal with no S. So if you were to take your U.S. signage and to use it in Ontario, even though you may have the calorie declaration, you're not technically compliant if you're missing that S. We're definitely in the like lawyer cross the T's <laughs> dot the I's zone, eh? Yeah, absolutely. But it's it's a there are, it's a good point that there's a lot of kind of specific formatting requirements that it's not just about the calories; it's how big are the calories disclosures? Yeah. Um, you know, what what's the prominence? Where are they placed? What is the specific type of advertising? Does it even require you know require the calories due to its placement in store? Right. So, let, I mean, so let's let's dig into this this comparative analysis then. The weirdest thing for me about the Ontario Act is uh, in the a lot of the U.S. acts, you need to uh, essentially register for an exemption. So, so if you don't exempt, if you think you're exempted, then you submit an exemption and you say why. And then the ministry looks at it and says, okay, yeah, you're right. You're totally exempted. And if there's a material change in the number of locations that you have or the type of food that you serve or any uh, thing to do with, with your menu or menu items, that sort of thing, then we'll revisit this. And the obligation is on you to identify that, which doesn't really solve a whole lot. But at least there's, uh, there is some sort of understanding or notification uh, and some good faith there that's created through just saying, like, hey, like, we don't think this applies to us. Whereas for here, it's just not really said. They reference food premises a lot. Uh, but food premises, in order to operate one, you need to get it inspected, and there are a bunch of requirements. And so it's an opt-in issue, uh, but there's a very clear map of food premises for every public health unit. I don't know. Like, how does someone determine whether you have 20 locations or not? Like, how would someone ever figure that out? Is there someone at Toronto Public Health that's got a uh, like a locations URL at Burger King, trying to figure out like, well, they're at 22 now, so we got to start enforcing this stuff. Yeah, well, you know, the enforcement under this is a really interesting point because while the ministry was responsible for, you know, all of the technical briefing sessions and gave a lot of details on their interpretation of the legislation and the regulations, and you know, for in my view, we're, we're really quite open and available to industry to uh, expand on what they thought compliance looked like. Enforcement is at the local public health inspector level. So um, I don't have a lot of insight on what that training looks like. You can imagine, though, a public health inspector has a lot of check marks on that list to on that list to determine whether or not a premise is in compliance with food safety requirements. I mean, you think that calorie disclosures probably aren't at the top of mind for a public health inspector. 
Um, but I've had reports from clients that they've already been inspected on this, that they, in, in the first few weeks of January, had public health inspectors coming in and asking about their calorie label uh, disclosures. So it's a really good point, right? How, how much training is being given to the public health inspectors? Is that going to vary depending on the jurisdiction that you're in in Ontario? Um, what does their checklist look like? You know, are they looking for CALs? versus Cal and will that be a you know potential technical violation under the act right great questions oh that yeah that that receives a fine for me like the big question is like the the technical stuff I would find infuriating I haven't had to deal with this act at work yet but uh like I find even just the idea of okay so we're going to get health inspectors to enforce this thing so they're going to go into a restaurant and the way that you're supposed to come up with your calories is either by reasonably eyeballing the thing by adding up uh, component parts and trying to figure that out or by sending it to a lab and actually getting a real answer. At what point does that become unreasonable? And as an inspector, do you just sort of like eyeball things and you're like, that looks actually a little bit bigger than what's in the picture. Like, I think that's a 600 calorie sandwich and not a 520 calorie sandwich. So I'm going to take that with me. And what proof are they going to require of that? I mean, there, there are some details in the act about you know, what kind of laboratory testing that you need to have done. And it's, I think it's essentially just that you, you think it's going to be accurate yeah, is what yeah. the standard is. Problems. Totally. But yeah, reasonableness is where it's at. Yeah. So, you know, will the inspectors look at something that is a dodgy calorie analysis and, you know, what do they say? And it gets complicated when you think about the food supply chain. So if you go into... Uh, a franchise-based restaurant and you ask the person behind the cash, hey, your calorie disclosure looks a bit off, what are they really going to say to you? I mean, they're not the ones who are going to be testing that food. Um, You know, it's going to have to go up the chain. And um, I don't know whether those questions have been asked yet about specific calorie um, calculations, but it's a really good point because at some point, um, you know, that's a, a huge part of it is, is that number right? Not just where it's placed and if it's placed and how prominent it is, but the whole point is this public health exercise. I was greatly relieved when I read in the act that, uh, inspectors couldn't use physical force. <laughs> that I thought was really important to put in there. Crucial details. It's like, this is, this is not a criminal law statute. This is not a quasi criminal law statute. They can order a burger. They can take it with them. They can ask for some documents. They cannot pin you down while they get that burger. What have discussions with inspectors been like? Like Because typically when I see a lot of these rules, there are huge fines attached to them. But when they're actually enforced, usually everyone's working towards compliance. So someone comes in and they say, look, like these aren't the right size. I'm going to come back in three months and fix it. And don't not fix it. Or I'm going to have to give you another month or two and then we'll shut you down or we'll charge you a lot of money. Well, I was really surprised to hear that inspectors had been in in January because the ministry had been pretty clear that their goals were going to be compliance and that while the legislation was in force at the beginning of the year, the goal was to get to compliance and that there would be a progressive enforcement approach. So when I, you know, when I heard that inspectors had visited and had indicated non-compliance and said that they would be back to in, inspect later, it was pretty surprising to me. 
Um, I mean, obviously within the scope of their powers since the legislation's in force, but considering how long it took for the regs to be finalized, it was a bit of a shock, to be honest. So I haven't had any clients who have, that I know, have gotten tickets for this, um, but certainly they've received visits, which I think is in and of itself sort of strange. Yeah. Well, I, sometimes I get the feeling in this country that we enact laws we have really very little intent of enforcing. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the thing is, this received so much media coverage. Um, you know, working in food labeling law, sometimes the intricacies are a bit lost in the sort of larger community perspective. And I understand why, because it's very technical stuff. And, you know, pro- many consumer products are, are highly regulated, and people just have no idea the underlying regulatory regimes, which I think is the way it should be. You know, you're. You want to go out and buy products, you want to just assume that somebody else has made sure that it's safe and that it's compliant. Um, But this calorie labeling stuff, I think because it was so uh, prevalent in the consumer market space and a few of the bigger uh, companies really were on top of their menus and got their disclosures out early, people started to talk about it and it was really picked up in the news. So maybe that contributed to it. Favorite hot takes in the news? I read a t- like watching this come in was fascinating, right? It really was. You know, the one that surprised me the most was um, the comments from people from uh, eating disorder prevention perspective mm. saying that posting this information could be really harmful to their health was not something that I had anticipated at all. So I, th- I think that was the most interesting and unexpected take. It's interesting, right? Like I, I for me... Like I really do like consumer disclosure. It's frustrating to enact and it's frustrating to prescribe fairly. But I think it's it's a really it's a wonderful thing. And and having um, more population become literate is great. But the idea of of not knowing or not customarily having that information to help people with eating disorders make an ill informed choice that was actually to their benefit, I thought was a fascinating take. Totally, totally. And I, I mean, I think most people were, um, you know, I think pretty supportive in the media. I think that it's, um, you know, the one of the really valid points that I read that I think is kind of a larger issue is, you know, calories really aren't the, the whole story. Um, not that I think that it would be great to expand the scope of that and the regulations or the legislation allows for regulations to be enacted to disclose anything really. So the door is open for any kind of nutritional disclosures that could be enacted in future regulations. So maybe we will see fat and sugar and all of the other nutrients play a part in that disclosure. But I think that that was kind of the the angle that I, I thought I, I did think was going to play out in the media was Calories are great, but dot, 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 right? Not every calorie is the same. Right. Yeah, I mean, the calorie discussion has been fascinating. Even the way the regs are set up, there's a contextual statement that is supposed to be posted somewhere. Uh, It says, well, so you see how many calories are in the food, but an adult is supposed to have in between 2,000 calories a day and maybe 2,400 calories a day. And, And if you're in between 4 and 12 years of age, it should be this. Uh, and there were a bunch of news articles that came out that said hilarious things. Like, one was, uh, this act is going to make women fat. <laughs> and that, I think, was in the CBC. Uh, and it's because 
maybe they don't break out for men and women, right? And consumption differences are, uh, in terms of calories, they're different. And so 2,000 calories is at the higher end for women and the lower end for men, just based on size normally. And so, so the thought is that they're not going to eat just until they're full. These people are going to eat until they get to 2,000 to 2,400 calories a day. And what then? Like they're going to be eating too much. They'll have 400 extra calories a day, and that'll translate into these pounds, and it'll be a public health disaster. I thought that was really fun. And then the second thing that I thought was really interesting is over the course of the consultations, uh, we saw an expanding and narrowing of the youth category. So I think initially it was like from 9 to 15, kids are supposed to eat something hilarious like 2,600 calories a day, like a huge amount. But for younger ages, it's way lower. Uh, and they ended up sort of in this middle ground where it was from 4 to 12. And it's like roughly 2,000 is good. And it's like, so, so a 4-year-old to a 12-year-old, you're saying roughly they should be eating the same thing. It's like, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so there were some some reasonable takes and some very hot takes on on this idea, both from like, like dietitians, registered dietitians in Canada, uh, and also from uh, just folks who felt they had a say. It was a super public consultation. Well, I think nutrition is an area that is really in flux right now. And it doesn't surprise me that there's a bunch of people on all sides of, of even the declaration of how much one should be eating in, in a calorie count per day is subject to significant debate. Right. And probably scientific interpretation that's right on both sides. Um, I think if you look globally, nutrition standards are really in flux right now. And, um, you know, nutrition is a huge concern from a consumer and, and public health perspective. And those two competing ideas don't necessarily play well together. Uh, people want easy answers for, you know, how much should I be eating and what should I be eating? But there is no easy answer to that. Um, and that complexity is really uh, difficult to legislate totally. when you're trying to keep it as simple as possible. And, and even though the calorie count seems as simple as possible as one could possibly get for nutrition labeling at restaurant level, it, it is actually quite complicated to um, put into force. And the way that Ontario's uh, the way that Ontario has legislated the requirements, there are a number of places where you have to have the calorie disclosure. So it's essentially everywhere unless it's subject to an exemption. Where are businesses getting tripped up in this thing? So we said cafeterias, different names, uh, and suppliers. But let's exclude the suppliers and talk just about front-of-line retail entities. Let's say like you definitely are a place that has 20 establishments. Some of this stuff applies to you for sure. Where are you goofing? For sure. Well, I think it, it a great place to start is the legislation says that it applies to menus, but menus are defined to include advertisements. Right. So right there, you, you could drive a truck through that, what that means. Um, and I, I think most of the complexity comes from advertisements. Menus are pretty straightforward. Uh, you have your typical restaurant where you're sitting down and you open up the menu. It's pretty clear it's a menu. Your quick service restaurants will have menu boards overhead. Pretty clear that those are menus. Um, some mostly quick service restaurants will have, uh, you know, potentially online menus at the store level. So you go in and there's an electronic display. So you can get some shades of gray of what a menu is, but it's usually pretty clear 
it's going to be a list of what you can order. But advertisements are far more complicated. And it's far more complicated when you're moving away from your classic restaurant, sit-down restaurant, and you're moving towards quick service establishments that maybe have more of a grocery element to them. Mm. And where's the line between the food that's going to be included and excluded? And grocery stores were a huge part of the industry feedback here that I think um, in drafting the legislation, the ministry wasn't necessarily, um, the ministry didn't necessarily know that they were encapsulating grocery stores as part of uh, this legislation. Because of course, many grocery stores have hot food counters. Um, they offer food that is able to be consumed without any sort of preparation, like fresh fruit. I mean, or it was the, the contemplation to include calorie disclosures on all of the, the fresh fruit, fruit and vegetables that are for sale at grocery stores. I don't think that that was what the intention was, but certainly the first drafts of the legislation and regulations were pretty broad. The regulations go so far as to actually try and define what a grocery store is, which is like just an amazing solicitor's drafting exercise, right? It's like, <laughs> define this so that you cannot squeak in or out of it. It just is. Yeah. Well, and that really was in uh, response to specific industry feedback, because I think in trying to draft legislation that would be sufficiently broad to be flexible, of course, you don't want to be narrowly defining things in legislation. You're going to want it to grow as um, you're going to want it to grow as society grows and changes. But in the broad drafting, uh, there's always the unintended consequence of being too broad and capturing too large of a scope. And I think a lot of the specific weird provisions in the legislation come out of the complexities that they were trying to address, but kind of missed the mark on. Do you think they did a good job of, of figuring out where the bright line is in a grocery store between hot counter and deli? And <laughs> you're shaking your head <laughs> so hard. Yeah, you know, I think the real, the real issue is... Um, is, is the aisle, right? So when you have items that are on display for a nutri- uh, when you have items that are on display in an aisle that have a nutrition facts table, so prepackaged products, those are meant to be excluded from the legislation. So the, there's a specific exclusion where you have a displayed item because of course the disclosures for calories are not just on menus and advertisements, they also apply to displayed food. So if you are a bakery and you have a bunch of muffins that you are selling, the calorie disclosure doesn't just need to be on your menu listing for the muffins, but it also needs to be included at display level. So there's a specific exception to the display disclosure requirement uh, for food that is subject to a nutrition facts table. So when you have a prepackaged product that has the federal uh, nutrition facts table, you're not supposed to have to p- include the calorie disclosure. It's a little redundant. Of course, right? Because people, okay, I'm picking up this cereal. I know that it, you know, I guess cereal might not be a great example. What's one that you can eat right away? Granola bars. I have my granola bar package. I can eat this right away. So it could be caught by the um, disclosure, but because it's got a nutrition facts table on the display, you know, where it says what the price is, doesn't need to have the um, calorie count because ostensibly I can just look at the prepackaged product. But the problem is most grocery stores don't just have tags at display level 
you'll have manufacturers who produce all kinds of material to be included in the aisle. So they could have pre-packed cartons that come with seasonal flavors of something that have advertisements on the, the prepackaged product, you know, is that going to be covered by the advertisement exclusion for the display items with a nutrition facts table? You know, if you have a wobbler that's coming off of shelf level and it's talking about a whole range of a certain brand um, with a price, is that going to be subject to this nutrition facts table exception? So it's, there's these complications that come from the creativity of marketing and advertising folks, and, and they're out there trying to produce great material that's going to be um, catching your eye in the, in the grocery store, for example. Um, and I don't know that the legislature really is aware of the complexity of these materials, and, and it creates a lot of ambiguity for enforcement. It's interesting. So hearing you speak about this, and I hadn't thought of it in this context, but with so many of our acts and regulations that relate to food safety, they've been around for so long. I mean, many of them for the framework fundamentally for like 100 years, roughly 100 years, getting the sort of meat inspection and those sorts of things, that we've developed the act and we've developed the regs. But then sitting behind all of that are these massive manual procedures. Uh, and, and so we see it, I see it in liquor, uh, see it in meat, uh, and a lot of other food areas where, uh, the way that an inspector or, or the crown, let's call it, is supposed to deal with something may not necessarily be set out in the regs, but it's very clearly set out in the policies. So in terms of how you deal with during the holidays, you'll buy a bottle of liquor and there'll be a small little sampler, a 50 milliliter sampler on the side. It's like thinking about how to deal with that and those marketing promotions and those sorts of things. It's all clearly set out. So you just need to get the manual procedures and you're fine and it's updated all the time, but whatever. At least there's something to draw on in terms of this is a normal way of dealing with the problem. We could advise our clients and we know how they're gonna be treated versus where we're at with this, where we just don't know because it came in so quickly. Well, and what's confusing too is the ministry actually produced quite a lot of resources for um, various industry, from various industry perspectives. Uh, Lots of FAQ documents, they held all these technical briefing sessions, Um, they provided uh, materials for specific players in the industry. So, you know, how does this this act apply for my convenience store and how does this act apply for my uh, grocery store? So they produced a lot of materials that I think are are really quite helpful and, and, and may speak to that policy side, um, you know, of, of actual enforcement. But as I said before, the, the enforcement is, is not going to be done by the ministry itself. It's being, it has been delegated to the local public health unit. So who knows what's out there? I haven't seen any checklists that inspectors are carrying around. I, I'm not sure what kind of training they've received. Um, and to your point, that's really what matters at the end of the day, right? When that inspector walks into this restaurant and they look at the calorie declarations, they're going to be the ones who are going to determine whether or not that's compliant. For someone who thinks they've been wrong done, I mean, the answer is choosing to, to have a judicial review of an administrative decision maker, right? Like that's what you're looking at. And so we've got mm-hmm. lots of cases on that, but none dealing necessarily with this. And so setting out the goalposts in that way is super helpful for us as counsel, particularly mm-hmm. when we're not litigating and we're trying to advise on risk. Mm-hmm. It makes this really hard. 
Well, and it's especially hard when the enforcement isn't from one body necessarily, yeah. right? So you have, I mean, most of my clients are, are national um, organizations. So this decision in Ontario is actually a decision that may be rolled out nationally just from a, a cost efficacy and also a policy perspective, right? If, if a company is going to be communicating to consumers in Ontario in one way, there's not really a, a business reason to communicate to consumers differently in other jurisdictions. So it's kind of a big deal for them to roll out all of these changes from a national perspective. Um, and if you don't really have certainty that they're going to be interpreted from one municipality to another in a consistent manner, I mean, that's kind of a frightening proposition, considering the investment. Right. Yeah, certainly. Which gets us to um, this issue you raised with suppliers. So how are suppliers getting caught up into this thing? Is this the little like jar of barbecue sauce that comes along with a meal and having Cali <laughs> labeling on that? Like, explain to me how. Well, those how are they accepted. Got you got to look at the exceptions, Confort. There. <laughs> well, where do they come up? I'm trying to figure this out. No, and it's a great question. I mean, the short answer is that it's the it's the premises that are responsible for for compliance, right? So they're going to be the ones who are going to be issued a ticket. Uh, but the supply chain is a little bit more nuanced than that, and. Uh, the, the manufacturers often review or they produce materials to be shown at um, particularly, you know, at, at quick service restaurants um, and even some of the sit down restaurants, too. Right. If, if you're if you're using a third party suppliers product, you know, the beverages that you sell or or whatever it is, those components are going to be supplied by a third party. So they're at the very least potentially providing the calorie information so that retailers and stores can use the right uh, calculations in their their own produced materials. Um, but also you may have situations where um, manufacturers are actually providing materials to be put up, so finished advertisements to be put up inside the premise. And um, so they have an interest in making sure that what they provide to their customers is going to be compliant. I mean, so if you think about, um, you know, you go to the movie theater and you're going to get something to eat before your film. You want to buy popcorn and candy and um, a pop before you go in. So that's your combination meal. Um the combination calories in the menu go from 400 to yes. like 28. I, we won't even get into how one would disclose that combination meal, particularly <laughs> when you have different sizes of popcorn, pop, and different kinds of candy. We'll just set that aside for everybody's <laughs> sanity. Um, but from a supply chain perspective, obviously the movie theater isn't producing any of this food, right? So they're going to have to get those calorie counts from their popcorn people, their pop people, and their candy people. And it could also be the case that, you know, maybe the candy supplier has a seasonal product that is going to be on the on the shelf at the movie theater for more than, you know, the 90 days or, you know, we're not talking about that kind of seasonal, but kind of maybe a new product. Yeah. And they want to promote that. And so they send to the movie theater a big advertisement about their new candy that they're really excited about. And often it will be the manufacturer of the candy that would produce that material and send to the movie theaters. So when they send it to the movie theaters, I mean, there may be a contractual obligation to make sure that these materials are going to be compliant for distribution in Canada. Um, but at the very least, you know, people do business together. They want to make sure that they're all on the same page. They're not going to be wanting to send 
poor materials to their their business partners. So they have a kind of a business interest in making sure that what they send is going to be compliant, in addition to potentially, you know, legal liability if what they send is, is not compliant from a contractual perspective. Right. So that's where it comes in from the manufacturer side. Okay, excellent. Um, something that gets beat up all the time in food labeling is serving size. This tackles serving size in a lot of ways. This actually goes to the length of defining a buffet and setting out what is reasonably a serving in a buffet scenario so that we can put numbers on that. What did you think about the math on that? Because I read that through the consultation and was like, wow, that's like we're really thinking about all of, we're parsing through all the different ways in which we take in food in a uh, like to-go or QSR or sit-down restaurant capacity. Yeah, well, uh, the serving size is a really interesting point in this legislation because it doesn't quite line up to federal serving size and reference size amounts. Uh, even where you have food that would be subject to you know, a particular reference amount or a certain serving size for other food labeling compliance perspectives. Um, really, the serving size, there's quite a lot of discretion, which I think is good. Yeah. Um, but... You know, you can state serving size as vaguely as per scoop. Yeah, you know? I, so actually, I kind of like that. Scoop, or like, is it a, you know, a shallow scoop? It's a very raisin brand sort of take on yeah. how to figure out what's in something. Exactly. So, I mean, I like that it's flexible. I like that it's meant to, um, you know, to morph depending on how the, the food or the beverage is going to be dispensed. Um and, you know, when you're dealing with products that are prepackaged, so say you're in that situation where you're, you have to make a disclosure about uh, a product that's on display but has a nutrition facts table, so maybe you have some sort of advertising that wouldn't be subject to the exception, you know, it's an open question as to whether or not you want to pick a serving size other than what your stated serving size is for the purposes of other food labeling requirements. Um, but it's uh, it is a funny little part of the legislation, and and in the the ministry guidance too, they they do reference kind of the the broad spectrum of of serving sizes and what that could mean for different establishments. Quirkiest part of the legislation, weirdest part. Weirdest part. I like um, that it's being amended already to uh, change a semicolon with a period. So I didn't like the <laughs> soft stop that. into however on the uh, the number of calories per day. Yeah, I mean, statement. I think the... It's like really that's, wonderful from a grammarian's <laughs> perspective. I think it's great. But. <laughs> well, I'm glad somebody's looking at that, right? That's, that's really what I wanted in my uh, legislative drafting. <laughs> You know, the, the, I don't think that the legislation is that quirky. Um, I think that there is a lot of complexity to it. Right. And I think that, you know, it's not my favorite part of the legislation, but there are a number of, of kind of cross-references between the regulations and the legislation due to the, the regulatory enactment history. Um, so I think that that's probably the weirdest thing about this kind of legislation when you compare it to something like, um, you know, the Food and Drugs Act and the Food and Drugs Regulations, which th they are very dense, but they are very methodical. Mm -hmm. I, I find that this legislation kind of jumps around a lot and you have to really parse it and be really careful when you're reading it to make sure that you understand actually what's what's being said. That's a really fair take. It is, I mean, it is interesting, the comparison between the, the food and drug regs 
which are so prescriptive and so clear, standards of identity, so clear, it is or it isn't. Uh, it is interesting to get into this universe where it's like, what's a menu? It's like, it's a lot of things. Mm -hmm. We want to really cover this. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. here are the things that it could be. And it's not necessarily a closed category. Well, and it's very, you know, the, the Ontario legislation is very prescriptive in some ways, but you can really see in the examples that they, they've included what was really meant to be targeted. So you see a lot of really hyper-specific provisions regarding combination meals and meals that are meant to be shared um, and, uh, you know, self-serve items like a, you know, like a, a pop fountain that you can serve yourself. So you can see the industries that they meant to target and it is quite prescriptive for them. Um, but the issue is that when you apply those really specific provisions to other kinds of premises, it can get a little bit confusing. So I, you know, I think that they really did try to give that specificity and that clarity. Um, but, you know, food premises and restaurants are, are pretty varied and, and pretty creative with how they serve their customers. Um, but yeah, I'll be interested to see what, what, what our menus look like in 10 years. <laughs> Maybe it'll have to come with, you know, 10 schedules. That was Kelly Harris on Welcome to the Food Court. Next month, we speak with Kevin James, a professor and Scottish cultural historian at the University of Guelph. Until then, thanks for listening, and thanks to Shane McPherson for the excellent music. <laughs>